Alright, thank you everybody for tuning back in. Last week we were discussing the end of Arvit. We were up to the section called Baruch Hashem Lo'olam Amen Amen. Some people simply call it Yiru Einenu. And last week we looked at the history of that tefillah and where it began, um, the earliest source. We were looking at the earliest sources that we could find for that tefillah. And uh, Gary just joined. Hi. And we, we looked at th- at least uh, eight or nine theories as to the origin of Yerue Nenu. I just wanted to give one little update for anyone who followed last week that one of the many reasons that we mentioned was, if I'm remembering correctly, was the Rivid. Um, let me just see if it's there that the reason that it was, the reason they instituted Yerai was for a shas hashmad. In other words, a time when there was a serious gzeira, which prohibited people from uh, praying arvit b'tzibor. And the issue with that theory was that we don't have any historical evidence of there being a shas hashmad when people couldn't pray arvit b'tzibor. And so the whole theory that they wrote Baruch Hashem Lolama Main Vamein as a substitute as a as a substitution for Arvit at during that time or during that Shat Hashmad, that is just historically non-existent, and therefore um, we left that off with a question mark. So just a small update on that. Uh, I noticed in the Sodota Tzfilah of Eliezer Levi, he writes a he has a theory basically that. In the time of the uh, when in the time of the Amoraim, uh, for many years they were under Persian rule. The Byzantine uh, kingdom, which ruled that section, at times was under the Persian rule, at times under the Byzantine kingdom. Um, it transferred uh, in power throughout the centuries, and he claims that the reason that the uh, Jews used to pray out in the fields, or they used to pray at the outskirts of the city, was because there was a gzera at the time, a decree of the Persian government, that they did not allow the Jewish people to build synagogues in the metropolis proper, in the urban area. If they were going to build their houses of worship, which were not the same uh, Zoroastrian uh, beliefs of the Jews, of the, of the Persians, they had to build their synagogues outside of the city. And therefore, it was always a sakana, it was always a danger for people to go to the synagogue at night because it was a good five, ten minute walk outside of the city proper. So it could be, and the way he, the way he understands it, is that this shat hashmad just is simply a reference to the time when the decree was that they had to pray late and out and far away from the city. And this just simply aligns with the other uh, theories we heard from the other Rishonim, which were that this was made as a uh, delay to tefillah to allow the latecomers to, to allow the latecomers to leave with everybody else so that the tefillah should be delayed. So in his in his view, this shat hashmad aligns with that uh, with that theory, and in, in that case, there's no uh, blatant contradiction. Tonight, we're just going to continue with the text itself. Uh, we're going to look at it fairly quickly. And then we are going to uh, finish off the other elements of Arvit. So the first thing to note about Baruch Hashem Le'olam Amen Amen is that like many of the other prayers from that period, 
its main body is made up of various pesukim, various verses, which are interwoven and strung together to become their to become their own prayer. In the earlier prayers, rabbinic prayers, right, the ones that come from the time of the Tanaim, or even earlier, especially the ones from the Navi, we find a more we generally find a more focused uh, style. We find a style which takes a we take a style we take a style which uh, which takes a goal or it takes a topic and then it focuses on completing that topic or completing that goal. Uh, generally without too much uh, loss of focus. That's generally what we find in earlier prayer. But one of the features here of this tefillah is that the pesukim that come one after the other are sometimes, you find that the pesukim that come one, that come one after the other are a little bit incogent, or like they don't seem to follow one after the other. So this is a feature which has received some study because on the one hand you could be uh, very faithful about it and just believe that there's some reason for why every pasuk one follows the other, or you could assume that this prayer has many changes over the past uh, roughly 1500 years and that this prayer has so many you know, short abridgments and expansions that eventually the original intention became lost. So now what's clear though is that there's an emotion here which the authors were trying to accomplish. There's an emotion um, or a some form of goal which the authors of the prayer were trying to accomplish. And what it would seem like is that the first half is speaking more about a praise of Hashem. And it starts, Baruch Hashem lo'olam amen v'amen, a praise of Hashem who could protect us and then kind of ends up in a place where it uh, prays for Hashem's protection by night. And then finally, Yeru seems to be a prayer specifically for the Yemot HaMashiach, or for, or for the Geula. Now, if you look in the Rambam, especially if anyone has access to a Frankel Rambam, you'll see that there are two versions that the Rambam himself quotes of this tefillah, each with similar pesukim, but different orders to the, to the pesukim, which again, are, are a little bit out of scope to go through the whole thing uh, right now. But you have this, you have the version of Sadia Gaon, which is very similar to the Rambam. You also have the Seder of Rambam, which is more similar to what we have today. Similarly, you have the Masravitri's order. And there's more than one uh, version of, throughout history of this prayer and in what order the Pesukim were. For the most part, many of the Pesukim are similar, but you do find places where there were pesukim omitted, deleted, added, things like that. But the, the main body is very similar and recognizable as the same prayer throughout uh, those earlier generations. Now, one interesting suggestion from Elbogen, from Ismar Elbogen, one of the uh, 19th century researchers, is that it is possible that there were two separate prayers that were combined. And he admits that this is conjecture, and we need more data before we could actually prove this. But it is entirely possible, just based on the features that we're seeing from the Rambam's text, from Rasadia's text, from manuscripts from Persia, from manuscripts from, from Rome, and also the, Roma, the Romaniot, Nusach, it is quite possible that there were two separate tefillot which were later combined. One tefillah was a nighttime prayer, simply a prayer for protection, and the other one was a prayer for the Yemot Eventually, now there are different theories as to why this would have been shtupt in here, 
um, could it have been because it, in Eretz Yisrael they said sukkat shalom aleinu instead of shomer tamoyisrael ad? I've heard, uh, I've seen a couple of conjecturous theories, but again, this is all conjecture, and we would need more manuscripts from that era in order to prove uh, such a hypothesis because. We don't find for certain any manuscripts or any sources which mention the tefillah Baruch Hashem Le'olam, completely separate from the tefillah Yeru and those similar verses which are part of the tefillah. So it is an interesting theory, but uh, we don't have enough uh, information or data to prove that. Uh, it is interesting, though, um, the one place we do something like, we do see something like that is in Rafsadia Gaon on Friday night. In the Seder of Rafsadia Gaon on Friday night, he says that we only say Yeru And, you know, there could be some support to that, but in other words, we only speak about Yimote Mashiach. We don't speak about the the, the Hoshein Hashem Kenu or Kolon Neshamat Halalka. We don't ask for, for, for protection for our Neshama. That could be some support to this theory, but it's not... Again, not a uh, ironclad proof. Now, let's just quickly go through the Pesukim. I know this is going to take a little bit of time, but I want to do it justice, so I'm going to do it as quickly as I can. The, the Nusach Sfaradi, I'm going to follow, uh, even though the Ashkenaz is probably identical. It goes, Baruch Hashem la'olam, amen v'amen. I won't translate everything, because most of it is very simple. Um, Baruch Hashem Sion, blesses Hashem from, from Sion. Shochein Yerushalayim halalukah who dwells in Zion, Yerushalayim, Baruch Hashem Elohim, Elokei Yisrael, blesses the Hashem, the God of Israel, Ose Niflaot Levado, who himself uh, does wonders, Baruch Shem Kvodo Le'olam, Bimalei Kvodo, At Kol Ha'aretz, Amen Ve'amen, all of these are Pesukim, which are familiar from Tehilim. Yichvod Hashem Le'olam, Yismach Hashem B'Ma'asav, Ki Lo Yitosh Hashem Amol, Ba'avur Hashem O'Hagadol, Ki Yoho Il Hashem L'asot Etchem Lo La'am, that's a Pasuk from Shmuel, that Hashem will never forsake his people, for the sake of his great name, because he swore to make them for him for a nation. And that's a pasuk from Malachim, that the, the nation fell on their faces and they said, Hashem is God, Hashem is God. Right? Should Hashem's mercy be upon us? And then it gets into the more of the petition st- st- side of it, where it's asking for protection. Right, a pasuk of 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 saving. All the nations which you have uh, created shall come and bow to you, and they shall give you honor. Because alone, the great one does does miracles. For we are your nation and the sheep of your of your flock. We shall praise you forever and we shall tell of your wonders. Now it veers off from the direct, um, from the direct paraphrasing. I'm sorry, I'm just like distracted by my son crying. So we, we have the, it veers off from the direct paraphrasing of Pesukim to go into a more, uh, what's the word, freeform tefillah. Baruch Hashem Bayom. Blesses Hashem by day, Baruch Hashem Balayla, blesses Hashem by night, Baruch Hashem Bishokhvenu, blesses Hashem when he lays us down, Baruch Hashem Bikumenu, blesses Hashem when he let, when he rises us up. For in your hands are the souls of the living and the dead. Which in your hands is the soul of all living things. It was also paraphrasing Pasuk, and the spirit of all of all uh, the flesh of man. And now we get into the direct petition for watching at night. And then it ends with a call for Hashem's sovereignty. 
after this call for Hashem's sovereignty, this kind of lead pasuk, it goes into Yurei Nenu. And Yurei Nenu, v'yismach libenu, v'takel nafshenu b'shuat t'cham al-kenu be'emet. Right? May our eyes see and our hearts rejoice and our souls exult, our souls exult in your salvation. As, as Zion declares uh, that Hashem has reigned, Hashem elech, Hashem alach, Hashem yimloch l'olam ve'ed, which is from the Hechalot, right? This is the song of the, of the Malachim. For the kingdom is forever yours, and forever you shall reign, for there's no other king besides you. And here we have the eulogy, Baruch Hashem, in the Sephardi version, right, who shall reign in his honor, the uh, living and enduring God. Shall he reign on us speedily forever, forever, on us and all creatures. So as you'll notice, I mentioned that the Sephardi version is Hamolech Bechvodo Aleinu, right? That he shall rule. The Ashkenaz version, to anybody who's Ashkenaz and familiar with this, will be Hamelech Bechvodo, the king. So where does that come from? So all the earlier versions, whether it's uh, the Seder of Amram, of Sadia Gaon, the Rambam, all the early Machsorvitri, uh, wait, is it in the Machsorvitri? Let me just double check that, because uh, this is why I opened it in front of me to make sure. No, sorry, not the Ashkenaz, but all the earlier versions, all say Hamolech Bechvodo. Now, the Manhig describes this, the, the evolution of this uh, Minhag. He says that in Spain and Provence, right, all the Sephardi countries, everybody said Hamolech Bechvodo. But in France, they said Hamelech Bechvodo, the king in his honor. Not he who reigns in his honor, but the king in his honor. So this is corroborated, obviously, if I just saw on the Mach uh, that it, that indeed the, uh, the, the French did say Hamelech Bechvodo, and they say, they say the same thing until this day. But the Manhig explains why. He says, we cannot use the language of Hamolech Bechvodo when it comes to Hashem, because the language Hamolech, if you're familiar with it from the Megillah of Megillat Esther, it says Hamolech Mehodu Kush, that Achashverosh ruled from one end of the earth to the other. And the Mepharshim say that Hamolech Mehoduvat Kush means that Achashverosh didn't rightfully reign. He didn't reign because he was a successive monarch. He reigned because he took control. And he, with his wealth, he managed to buy the position of monarchy somehow, and he assumed control of the kingdom. And he wasn't a true heir to the throne. So because Hamolech is possible, it can be understood to mean that somebody assumed um, assumed sovereignty without being truthfully, uh, without rightfully inheriting it. Therefore, we shouldn't use that term when it comes to Hakadosh Baruch Hu, and we should use Hamelech Bichvodo. And that's the what the Manhig says is the appropriate behavior, and that's what the Ashkenazim do until this day. And the Sfaradim who say Yiru will still say Hamolech Bichvodo, as was the original Nusach. Sorry, the original Sfaradi Nusach. The Magen Avraham brings in Reish Lamed Vav brings a sefer called Emek Hamelech, which says very similarly to this, and he also says that it's Hamolech Bichvodo Kama Tamidim Lochalenu, right? That you put the Kama before Tamid. Other people say it's Hamolech Bichvodo Tamid, right? That he that he uh, constantly reigns in his in his honor, but you could you could see it either way. Finally, when it says Huim Lochalenu. That he shall reign upon us, the Hago, he brings the Hagot Mamoniot, who says 
that yimloch is not a prayer, a petition. Meaning, if you read it simply, um, let me just pull up the Ashkenaz version. Uh, the Ashkenaz version here is tamid yimloch aleinu lalam ve'edlachamasav. He shall rule upon us forever and on all of his works. So it would sound like if you read it quickly, that that's a petition, that Hashem should reign on us forever. What the Magen Avraham is bringing is that we shouldn't read it that way. We shouldn't read it as a petition, we should read it as a praise. That Hashem will forever reign upon us, but as a praise and not as a petition. Why? Because we're not allowed to say a chatima, we're not allowed to say a eulogy to a, to a prayer, which includes a petition. The chatima always has to be a shvach, which is an interesting rule that I've, I've never actually uh, seen before, and it takes some, it's going to take some investigation to see if that's actually true across the board, and if everybody agrees with that. Okay, let's go a little further. This is where it gets very interesting. Chazarat Hashatz. Now that we've finished the, uh, what's the word? We have finished speaking about the brachot before Arvit. Let's discuss the rest of Arvit. Now it's common knowledge that Arvit does not contain a Chazara, right? If you go to Shul, they're not going to repeat Chazarat Hashatz by Arvit. Now, why is that? So the Rambam in Hilchot Tefillah Perek Tet says that because Arvit is a Rishut, meaning that academically Arvit is not an obligatory prayer, even though we treat it uh, halachically as an obligatory prayer, academically it's an, op- it's an optional prayer, um, therefore, the whole point, says the Rambam, of Chazarat Hashatz, of the entire repetition, of the Chazan's repetition, was in order to be motzi, to, to fulfill the obligation for those who are not Bekiim, for those who uh, do not know how to recite the Shemona Esrei. And because Tefillat Arvit is optional in the first place, nobody is chayav. If nobody is obligated, then there's nobody to be motzi. There's nobody to fulfill, there's nobody to, to, to discharge their uh, obligation for them. Therefore, there's no need to do Chazarat Hashatz. Uh, the Beit Yosef brings from the Rashba that he elaborates further, and he, of course, the Rashba is always a lamdin. He says, first of all, if the person's a baki, if the person prayed Arvit, then he's probably a baki, and he doesn't need you to be choser. If the person didn't pray Arvit, then he's not a baki, and he's patur um, entirely because it's it's a reshut anyway, and therefore, you know, either way, you don't you don't need the um, you don't need the chazarat hashat. However, as we said in the introduction to the Tefillah of Arvit, we said that there was a machloket between Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Gamliel, two Tanaim, in Yavna, uh, post the post the Churban Habayit. There was a dispute as to whether or not Arvit should be considered a Tefillah Rishut or Tefillah Chovah. Should it be considered optional or, or obligatory? So as I said, we, we rule that it is an optional prayer, that technically the Tefillah of Arvit is not obligatory, and that has some ramifications, as we'll see soon. But uh, we rule like Rabbi Yeshua, however, we practice that it is an obligation. So if you think about it, according to Rabban Gamliel, who always held that Tefillat Arvit was a chova, that it was an obligation, according to Rabban Gamliel, if you think about it, they should have done Chazarat Hashatz, meaning that everybody who followed the school uh, Federic just joined us. Everybody who followed the school of Rabbi Gamliel should have had the obligation to, to do Chazarat HaShatz. Now, I never thought about this on my own, but I did see on a note 
um, to uh, in Elbogen in the uh, Jewish liturgy. The English translation was done by Raymond Scheinlin. He has a note there, which he wrote in the 70s, which is that today um, we have evidence that there were times and places when they did do Chazarat Hashatz by Arvit. And let's elaborate. So if you look in the Yisodot HaTfilah from Eliezer HaLevi, he also assumes that this is the case. He brings a Gemara in Chulin, Dafsadi Aleph Mudbet, and he brings a Midrash in Hechalot. And he also brings a Midrash uh, Gemara on Shabbat, etc., which all sound like that the Gemara is, the Midrash is saying that they used to do Kiddushah three times a day. So if the Midrash, which is an, a work from Eretz Yisrael, is saying that they used to do Kadi, a Kiddushah uh, three times a day, that would also indicate or suggest that they were doing Chazrat Hashatz three times a day. You could understand it differently, but that's how uh, he assumes it is to be understood. Uh, furthermore, there's a Gemara on Shabbat. Um, oh, uh, I should just hold that off for a second. Because Shailen himself, he says that we have piyutim. Yeah, this, is, this is where I was a little bit confused. But he said that we have piyutim today that we found from Eretz Yisrael, which proved beyond the shadow of a doubt that there were times and places in Eretz Yisrael where they did do Chazarat Hashatz uh, by Arvit. So there were people who did this, clearly because during the time when it was still contentious, whether or not it was a chova or, or, a, or a reshut, there were people who did it. As we've mentioned last week, that there was still a time up until the time of the Savaraim when different people had different minhagim as to whether or not it was a reshut or a chova. So what were these piyutim? I wanted to find out what the piyutim were. My, my assumption was that these piyutim were simply piyutim uh, for like a, like a uh, what do we call it, like a reshut for a kedushah, like so, some sort of piyut which prefaces a kedushah for arvit, something of that nature. But I couldn't find the source that Shailen was, was uh, referencing. He was referencing a book by Avramir Haberman, which was written in 1932, has not since been uh, reprinted. And as I searched high and low, I could not find the library in the land um, or, well, I couldn't find a single person or library that had this book in stock that could get it to me. Uh, luckily, I found in the, uh, the New York Public Library, actually, in Manhattan, uh, they had a microfilm of it. So I emailed them, and I asked them if I could see it, and they said, actually, we're closed because of the coronavirus. So one of the librarians there was kind enough to actually reply to me, and she said, if you tell me what page you're looking for, I could send it to you. So I did, and lo and behold, this afternoon, she actually came around to it. She was the, the librarian of Jewish studies. She went down to the, to the basement, got me the microfilm, and got me the page that I needed. Now, as uh, commendable and as gra grateful as I am to her for getting me that page, the footnote and the page that she got me uh, of the book, she couldn't get me the whole book, so I'll have to wait on that, did give me more information about these PU team. But uh, it uh, did not, sorry, it did give me more uh, information about the Chazrat Hashatz Bayarvit, but it didn't give me the actual source for those piyutim. I, I, maybe I'll find it soon. Many of the sources are actually in German, um, so I had to brush up on my Google Translate, I mean, you know, or my, my German in order to decipher half of what was going on. But he does quote um, from, uh, what's the word, from Yom Tov Zanz, right? Uh, Lepel Zanz, who was also a researcher in the 19th century. He quotes from one of his uh, prominent books on Jewish liturgy that he says 
in Sicily around the year 1300. There were Kihilot there in Sicily who were also doing Chazarat Hashatz by Arvit. Since then, the Minhag has been Batel. But that's actually a fascinating thing that in the Italian lands, there were uh, Jews doing Chazarat Hashatz by Arvit. This does align nicely with the theory that the Jews from, from Eretz Yisrael did migrate down to, to Italy, but we can't know for certain because this Minhag has been extinct for about seven, eight hundred years. Now, he also says that there are some similarities between that and the, the Minhagim of Mallorca, which is also a Mediterranean island. So, that does remain a mystery. Uh, there's a famous black Gemara, Chavdalad Amud Bet, in Shabbat, which talks about Yalaviavo and all the things you add to Arvit. And over there, Rava says that if a person, if uh, that the Chazan doesn't have to speak about, if I'm remembering cr uh, correctly, if it's a Shabbat Yom Tov, and the Chazan is repeating Shmona Esra, and the Chazan, in other words, Rava says Shabbat Yom Tov, the Chazan doesn't have to mention Yom Tov in the Chazarat HaShatz because um, the only reason he's saying Chazarat HaShatz is because of Shabbat. And therefore, you don't have to mention Yom Tov if the only reason you're saying Chazarat HaShatz is for Shabbat. So Rashi understands what does he mean by Chazarat HaShatz by Arvit. Of course, he means Tefillah Me'en Sheva. But other researchers suggested maybe Rava should be taken literally. Maybe what Rava was saying was that the, on Shabbat only, they used to do Chazrat HaShatz by Arvit because they were able to, because in the time of the Amoraim, when there were enough people out there alone, they had the time to do Chazrat HaShatz, or because in their place and their time, that was their Menhag, to do Chazrat HaShatz by Arvit, specifically on Shabbat. So that's a possibility. It's not Muchach from the Gemara, but there's definitely a possibility uh, that, the, that there are Midrashim or Gemarot, which can be bent to understand that this was the practice. We definitely know, if, if I ever find those specific Biutim, I'll let you know, but we definitely... Uh, have a lot of evidence that this was indeed the case. However, the modern uh, minhag, as has been the case for the past at least uh, 900 years in most places, has never been to do a chazan's repetition by Arvit, and that's the way it remains. But there are other minhagim which became extinct only more recently. While Chazarat Hashatz, if it indeed was a minhag, uh, fell from existence 700 years ago, there were other minhagim which definitely persisted and are mentioned by the Rishonim, the first of which we should discuss is Nefilata Payim. Many people today uh, understand Nefilata Payim or Tachnun to be a feature of Shachrita Mincha, but not of Arvit. However, already in uh, the time of the Babylonian schools, uh, in the Shivot in Bavel, uh, they clearly had a minhag to do nefilata paim also by arvit. In the Seder of Sadia Gaon, he says that it's very common in our time that people do this and there's nothing wrong with it. He doesn't endorse it specifically, but he says there's nothing wrong with it uh, to, to do a nefilata paim by, by arvit. It's not clear if he means in our place. He says people from our nation. He doesn't mean, it's not clear if he means people in Egypt or people in Bavel. I'm not, I'm not sure exactly. Uh, I, I'm I, didn't, I, don't, I don't actually speak Arabic, so I would not know uh, from, the, from, the, uh, from the nuance of the Arabic exactly what it is that he meant, whether it was the Egyptian uh, uh, minhag or the uh, Babylonian minhag. Regardless, we have a tshuva from Marsar Shalom Gaon, one of the geonim, who says that the minhag in Bavel was to do tachnun by Arvit. Many people did, even Bitsibur, he says, and even at night. 
The only night they didn't do it was Erev Shabbat. He's, that, that's what he says. Now, I'm not sure what he means by Erev Shabbat. He might mean Friday night. That's what I assume he means. Um, but there's also the Shibbolei Aleket who brings this tshuva and he says that there's another Ga'al, and he doesn't say who, who prohibits it. Who, and some of the other Ga'onim uh, did not approve of the Minhag. So we know that there was a time in the time of the Ga'onim when many people did Nefilat Apayim by Arvit. But the Rambam says that by his time, most Jewish communities did not do nefilat apayim, only certain individuals. This indicates that this practice ended by the end of the time of the Gonim, meaning if the Rambam lived in the 12th century, it was probably already 100, at least 200 years before the Rambam was born that this practice began to die out for saying tachnun by nefilat apayim. This is corroborated by, uh, I think it's in... The Manhig, the Manhig also says that this isn't the Minhag in most places. The Shibboleth Aleket says it's not the Minhag in most places to do Nefilat Apayim. Years later, uh, already in the 15th century, the Mikubalim deprecated saying Nefilat Apayim by Arvit for Kabbalistic reasons. They said that you shouldn't do Tachnun or fall on your face at night because you're saying, right? you're raising your soul to Shemaim. It's a very dangerous thing to do. And especially at night when there's many dinim, there's many uh, uh, forces of, of strict judgment, a person should refrain from doing tachnun at night. And that has remained the practice for at least the past 600 years or so. So I have not yet found a person doing uh, nefilat apayim at night, and such is ruled in the Ramah and Shulchan Aruch, uh, based on the Agar. Okay, another minhag which is since extinct, is to say the Pitum HaKetoret after Tfilat Arvit. Now, this is already brought in the Seder of Amram, in the Seder of the Rav Amram Gaon, which is a good 1,200 years ago. And he says the reason is very simple, because the Ketoret was brought twice a day. It was brought in the morning, and it was brought in the evening, and therefore we should say it twice a day. And it pretty much is as simple as that. He does say that the shear of the Levim, we only say in the morning, but not at night, because they only say once. Also very simple. But the, the predominant minhag never seemed to become an overwhelming practice. If you look in the Mach Sorvitri, uh, it does indeed contain Pitumak Toret, which indicates that the early uh, Franco-German minhag was to say Pitumak Toret every day. It wasn't simply a Sfaradi uh, minhag. It wasn't simply something of the schools of the Geonim, but there are features of the one in the Mahsarvitri which are actually pretty interesting. First, the Mahsarvitri has the Pitumak Torah Ketzad and the whole Breitah. Then he has, um, here we go, he adds Amr Vzeir Meshumach Nasa which is a part of the Breitah we don't have everywhere. Uh, and then after that, instead of doing the typical Pitumak Torah Breitot, which we're familiar with, we have Amr B'Liezer ben Azariah, Harei ani keben shivim shana, velo zachiti shetomar yitziat misraim balaylot. So he says that Brayta, the famous Brayta that we're familiar with from the Haggadah Shal Pesach, about mentioning yitziat misraim by night, um, says the whole Brayta. And then he mentions a another uh, minhag, which I've kind of mentioned before, but I didn't really get into it too much, which is that after, at the end of uh, at the end of this part of saying Pitu Maktorat at night, and that those Braitot, what you would do is the, there would be a child who would get up and he would say Kaddish. So this is one of, one of, one of the many theories in the academic uh, 
what's the word? Um, uh, in the endeavor, in the academic endeavor to discover what the origins of Kadishia Tom are, one of the things that's brought up is this period of the Maxovitri, this minhag. So there was a minhag in uh, early uh, France and in early Germany that after Arvit, a young child would get up and say Kaddish to close the tefillah. Not a yatom, just a nar, just a, just a young child. And Rashi says, or whatever the, the Maxovitri says specifically, uh, the Kaddish zeh eno ela lechanech at the tinokot. This Kaddish was only to give chinuch to the tinokot. So nothing about uh, orphans, nothing about, uh, you know, uh, Kaddish yatom. Simply this was the minhag that a young child should say it. Later, this minhag of a child uh, became uh, simply an orphan, and eventually it evolved. How this minhag played a role in the evolution of the minhag for Kadish Atom is not simple and not 100% knowable, but I should just mention that that's the way that they closed Arvit in the time of the Maxarvitri. They would finish Arvit, they would do Kadish, Pitum Akhtoret, and a Kadish of, of from Anar. Beautiful. Um, the tour and the Manhig. Both of them bring this minhag of saying pitumakatoret, so it's clear that they were aware of it, and it was a Spanish. It was done in certain areas of Spain. However, uh, it didn't survive totally. Apparently, apparently, it probably wasn't very popular. But the Moroccan communities did uh, did retain in many places in Morocco. They did retain a minhag very similar to this up until recently. Uh, recently, again, probably through uh, I don't want to call it laziness, but lack of time people uh, deleted these uh, petitions, or sorry, these sections from the prayer book. And the, the Moroccan minhag was to say, Kaveh el Hashem, En Kelokenu, and Tanad Ve'el before Kaddish. That was the Moroccan minhag. Recently it was changed, uh, and the more recent prayer books don't have it, but they, they'll, if I remember correctly, the, the Koran will have a, 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 a note that some people say this, like in Meknes or Marrakesh. That was the minhag, but it's not the popular minhag anymore, as so many Sephardi communities have mixed and they've basically standardized the uh, the modern sidur. Uh, okay, so we're almost finished here. The Sephardi minhag is that after Arvit we don't have pitu maktorat. Instead, we say with kaddish shir lamalot, and that sh- and that mizmor is just an opportunity to make another kaddish for the yatomim. And so we say we say a parak of tilim. So the current choice is Shir Lamalota Sinai El Harim. I did not have time to track it down, but I do not know where that minhag began. My suspicion is that the minhag that he used Shir Lamalot began sometime in the past 300 years. I don't have right now uh, hard evidence to prove that. I'm guessing if I open the bit Obed, that's what you're going to find. But this minhag of saying Shilamalot, I believe, started recently. If you look back in the Orchot Chaim, he says that their minhag was to say, uh, miz, I think it was, Shir Mizmar. He doesn't say which uh, Parak Tilim, he just says, we say Shir Mizmar. That could mean Shir Mizmar Lasaf, it could be, could be Shir Mizmar Levine Korach. I'm not sure what he means, but if you look in the Eliyarabah, he says that the minhag in some places in, in, in Ashkenaz was to say Shir Mizmar Lasaf. So most likely he's talking about Shir Mizmar Lasaf. I don't know anybody who says Shir Mizmar Lasaf at the end of Arvit anymore, but eventually the Minhag became to say Shir Lamalota Sinai El Harim. Again, as I've mentioned before, the, the point of putting a Parak Tilim here is simply in order to be able to say a Kaddish and to give an opportunity for the Kaddish Atom. So it probably ended up being whatever were the most popular uh, or appropriate 
uh, was or whatever the kahal wanted. Now, the next feature of the Sidur that you'll see by Arvit is Baruchut Hashem Amvorach, before Arvit. There are, we've spoken about this a lot, about saying Baruchu before Aleinu, uh, saying Baruchu not before Bracha, so anyone who wishes can reference previous Shurim, which also speak about this. But in short, there is a somewhat longer history, which is that Rav Amram Gaon was uh, asked to, asked the Shela, can we say, uh, can we say Baruchu after Baruch HaTashem Ga'al Yisrael before Hashem Sifatai Tiftach? Meaning, if people come late to Arvit and they didn't hear Baruchu at the beginning of Arvit, can we add Baruchu after Ga'al Yisrael for those people? Rabbi Amram Gaon actually says it's okay to do. But eventually the leanings of the rabbis were that we shouldn't interrupt between Ga'al Yisrael, or sorry, Hashkivenu, between Hashkivenu and Hashem Sefetai Tiftach. And therefore, eventually it got pushed to the end of Arvit, and therefore instead we say Baruch at Hashem Avrach at the end of Arvit. So you'll find the Ashkenazim will sometimes also, I, th- I think if I'm not mistaken, the Saradim will say Baruch Hashem Avrach before Aleinu. Do the Ashkenazim, remind me, does Ashkenazim say Baruch Hashem Avrach before Aleinu, or people just do it after if they came late? I don't, I don't remember precisely. Gary, do you remember? Right, so the Sfaradim will. Right, so yeah, so the Sfaradim will say Baruch Hashem Varach before Aleinu, and this is a, a, in unison, right? All the the Yatomim. And then uh, among the Ashkenazim, if somebody came late and they want to be able to say, they say Baruch Hashem Varach, and people answer for them Baruch Hashem Varach uh, Leolam Vayed. That's so much for Baruch We've spoken about this more at length at another time. Two more little things if we have time. Let's just see how much time we have. Um, okay, yeah, we'll just cover this. So, most communities are familiar with saying Aleinu at the end of Tefillah. And we have discussed Aleinu and we discussed how it came to be that it uh, retained a permanent place at the end of every prayer. However, there's an interesting minhag that not many are aware of that the Moroccans will say Aleinu l'shabach, but they'll skip Al-Kainik Havlecha. By Arvit, the Moroccan minhag in many, many places was not to say Al-Kainikavalacha by Arvit. So the reason for this is not well known. Nobody really knows why. First of all, to say Aleinu at the end of the tefillah is just a minhag. It's not a requirement. It could be that due to lack of time, they just didn't have time and therefore never put it in. It could be a quirk of the, of the prayer books. It could simply be that uh, they didn't print the whole thing because they didn't have room on the paper. Or there was one famous prayer book that just had a paper missing. You, you never really know. But this was the minhag in the Sidur of Atarat Avot, of, sorry, in the Sidur of, tif, of uh, what's it called? Something Avotenu. Um, uh, what's it called? Sidur Avotenu, I think they call it, the Moroccan one. Um, one of the Moroccan Sidurim. They have a theory that the reason that they didn't say al Kavalacha is because by night we are not Mikabel Edut. What does that mean? We don't accept testimony by night. So we mentioned, I hope we mentioned before, that Aleinu begins and ends Ayin Dalid, and Al-Kainik Havalacha begins and ends Ayin Dalid. Two Edim, two witnesses to Hashem's uh, sovereignty, to Hashem's reign. And therefore, because we don't accept testimony by night, we're not going to accept two witnesses, therefore we only say one. So... That it's an interesting theory. Uh, I don't know if it's true, but on the other hand, they bring proof for this. Like, hey, 
On Shabbat, um, there were also those who omitted it. And on Shabbat, Shabbat itself is an Ed. Shabbat itself is a witness. So because on Shabbat, we also have this minhag of only saying Aleinu uh, uh, and not saying Alkein, must be also because Shabbat is an Ed, we don't have to, we don't need a second Ed. Uh, we only need one Ed in addition to Shabbat. Okay, it's an interesting theory. I don't know if there's a way to prove it or not, but that's their suggestion. Uh, just before we go, I'll mention something that Svi asked me about a couple of weeks ago, which is the topic of Tefilat Tashlumin. So now, as I mentioned, Tefilat Arvida, academically speaking, we, we, we uh, rule that is a Tefilat Rishut. Now, what does that mean that it's a Tefilat Rishut? So, what, what practical difference does that have for us? So now, there's a concept which we learn from Igmaran Daf Chafvav Amud Aleph in Brachot. We learn from Rabbi Yochanan, let me just pull up the Daf Gemara, that we can do, we can have a compensatory prayer, right? Prayer of compensation. There's a fancy word in there for English because it's a feature of more than one religion that you could have a prayer which is compensating for a prayer which you missed. So Amr Rabbi Yochanan, Ta'av lo hitpalel mincha mitpalel arvich ta'im. Right, so it's a famous Gemara from Rabbi Yochanan where he says that a person who misses a prayer can um, repeat that, uh, sorry, can make up with a compensatory prayer. So how does this work? If you look in the Torah or in the uh, or in Orachayim in, in Shulchan Aruch, Kufchet, that's Siman 108, he details all the halachot of this. So, for example, if a person misses shachrit because of, a, of an ones or a shogeg, then he, what he could do is, by mincha, he prays the first tefillah, the first shmona esrei as mincha. Then he says ashrei again, and then he says another shmona esrei to make up a tashlumin for shachrit. The same is true for mincha. If you miss mincha, you pray twice by arvit. By arvit, you would pray twice by um, if you missed Arvit, you would pray twice by Shachrit. So now, Tosafot on, uh, what's the word? Tosafot on Daf Chavav Amudalaf over there has an interesting point regarding this idea of Tefillat Hashlumin. So I should probably share my screen. Uh, how do I do this? One second. Here we go. So you have this Gemara here, Tav Elo Hitpalel Tefilat Hitpalel Arvit Metpalel B'Shachrit Shtayim. So Tosfot asks a very simple question. Vim Tom Arvaham Arbi Yochan Arbi Rav Lekaman Tefilat Arvit Rishut V'Kaimalan Kavatei B'Yusrei V'Od Kashad Amar Lekaman Tav Elo Hitpalel Yelavi Avulayla In Machzino Tom Mishum De'En Mekachin Atachodesh Balayla V'Lamalei Haytaima Tepugle De Tefilat Arvit Rishut. Tosfot asks, Why is it that a person who forgets Arvit should pray Shachrit twice if we paskin that Arvit is a Rishut, there should be no need to repeat the Arvit twice. So Tosafot answers with a big chidush, and, all, and he also asks another question from the Gemara later on, but I won't get into that for the moment. Tosafot answers with a big chidush that not all the Rishonim agree with, but he says, V'yeshlomar, ha-de-amrinan tefilat Arvit Rishut, hainu legabe mitzvah cheret, v'hi overet. Meaning, that if a person has another mitzvah, which he will lose the opportunity to do, then that's doche, that pushes away arvit. De'az amrinan tidchet tefilat arvit mepanea, avalchinam en lo levatela. 
but it doesn't mean that you can um, skip it willy-nilly. Um, okay, and then he goes into the technicalities of, of the Dizman for that. So it's clear that there are reasons, Tosfot holds, that if a person has a, uh, a mitzvah, which he will lose the opportunity to do, he should do that tefillah instead. He should do that mitzvah instead and skip arvit. However, when we say tefillah arvit reshut, it doesn't mean that it's not a chovah. It is a chovah. However, you would have to make it up later in case uh, you missed it. That's the um, position of Tosafot. Obviously, the, the halacha is, many people are aware, that uh, if you miss uh, two tefillot, most would hold that you don't, let's, for example, you miss shachrit and mincha, uh, then you don't do arvit, you don't do three. You can, only, you, can only, you can only miss it by one zman, right? So if you, shachrit, if you miss shachrit, you could do it, by, you could do it double up, up by mincha, but you can't double up by arvit. You can't uh, triple up or quadruple up in case you missed many. That's the way most poskim uh, assume is, is the halacha. And um, what other halachot are there? If it's b'mezid, if a person intentionally didn't uh, pray, then also he does not get this, uh, he does not get this uh, opportunity for a, comp- for a compensation to do a prayer, which is a compensation. And this is distinct from what's called a tefillat nidavah. Tefillat tashlumin and tefillat nidavah, uh, I should just point out, are two different things. A tefillat nidavah, nidavah is one which is given, uh, a tefillah just said, Voluntarily, it's a different topic than tefillat tashlumin, but this is a feature which applies as well to arvit, even though arvit is a reshut. Okay, so hajan alach tefillot chol. We are going to, God willing, continue next week with something else. Maybe it'll be hamapil. Maybe it'll be berkat hamazon. Uh, we'll see. But um, until next week, so thank you everybody for coming, and we'll uh, we'll. Uh, Take it off from there.